Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am here to share with you a conversation that I had with Deborah Gonzalez, a candidate for district attorney in the Western Judicial Circuit. That is a portion of our state that includes Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties. She is a candidate for district attorney, which is a position that plays an important role in the criminal legal system. And so I talked with her about her views on criminal justice reforms, on the progress of those, and on some of the responsibilities of a district attorney. I think if you're somebody who maybe had a vague sense of what a district attorney does or about prominent issues in criminal justice reform, I think this conversation really makes the stakes of those policies real and and can give folks an understanding of what a district attorney is actually responsible for within our criminal legal system. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with Deborah Gonzalez, candidate for district attorney. All right. Joining the podcast is Deborah Gonzalez. She is a candidate for district attorney in the Athens, Clark, and Oconee County areas. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kyle. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. Deborah, you're a candidate for district attorney. And I think to some extent, our listeners may have a sense of some of the issues that are at play in a district attorney's race, but may not fully understand what a district attorney does. Um, So I want to get into some of that today in our discussion, but I think we should start with just giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you're running for district attorney. Well, thank you for the opportunity to just talk a little. And some of your listeners may actually think my name sounds familiar. And that's because I served as a Georgia state representative for House District 117 that had pieces of Athens, Clark, Oconee, Jackson, and Barrow counties from 2017 through the 2018 um, legislative session. And uh, I am an attorney. And so uh, when I entered um, politics after the 2016 election, I entered it because I felt that there were some things that needed to be changed. And so when uh, after I finished serving as a state rep, I wanted to continue public service because I wasn't sure in what role. But when I was a state representative, I served on the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee, and this is where they discuss all the criminal laws, including drug laws and immigration. And because of my work there, I was actually appointed to a national task force on criminal justice reform and the law for the National Hispanic Caucus of State Legislators. And so was getting different aspects of the criminal legal system, both on the state as well as the national level, and then started looking at what was happening in, you know, as they say, your own backyard, right, right here in Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties. So we are considered the Western Judicial Circuit. There are 49 of those throughout the state of Georgia. Um, So that means that there are 49 DAs in our state um, currently. And One of the things that I wanted to do uh, or I thought was important in this race is to have a real voice of the community uh, speaking about uh, criminal justice reform. What does that mean? Because so many times in the conversation about criminal justice, it's the community voice that's not really there, but it's the community that is most directly affected by what happens with that system. 
With pledges to end mass incarceration and support restorative justice programs, your platform follows in the footsteps of other progressive, reform-minded district attorneys recently elected in cities across the country. I'm thinking of folks like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or Rachel Rollins in the Boston area, Kim Fox in Chicago. Would you consider yourself to be a part of that group in terms of your views on criminal justice issues and the impact that you'd like to have on the DA's office here in Athens and Oconee counties? Yes, absolutely. I do. And I have been following the ones that you've mentioned as well as others. There is an organization called Fair and Just Prosecution where all of these, uh, as you call them, progressive prosecutors find sort of a support system to be able to share uh, the different best practices that they have been putting into place in their circuits, etc. And, you know, one of the things that I just like to mention, because sometimes we get caught up in these labels like progressives, and they um, sort of endue a certain idea of what that means. But in the sense of criminal justice and the system and reforms, I do want to remind your listeners that this was uh, one of the priorities actually of Governor Nathan Deal. Um, And so it's not a partisan issue per se, right? This is something that both sides of the aisle actually agree on that needs to happen because we have a system that is not effective, that costs way too much money, doesn't give us um, the results that we need. And so when we look at this idea of progressive prosecutor, I think that's really saying somebody who's going to come in and take a look at all of the potential opportunities and different options that we have to deal with this issue of crime. And so an example would be is that, you know, if you go into it and look at, okay, crime is one thing, crime are statistics that we can find out, has crime increased or decreased? But if you look a little deeper, what causes crime, right? And what is something that's affecting our community that's not necessarily Um, under the umbrella of crime. And so I would bring to the focus this idea of violence. There's a lot of violence that happens in our community that leads to crime, but that's never addressed. And a lot of that uh, violence will cause and is also caused by trauma. So seeing, you know, best practices as training of trauma-informed law enforcement, and that includes prosecutors as well, to understand what does it really mean to make our communities safe doesn't just deal with this issue of it has to be a crime-only focused. And so to me, these prosecutors and myself are looking at a much broader definition of what a DA can do and what the DA's role in the community actually is. And I know that's going to be your next question, right? What does a DA do? Because it is one of the questions I get asked all the time. And the reason why it is asked is that in Georgia, as well as in other places around the country, the DA is an elected position that most people don't hear about, don't talk about, don't think about. Um, they usually run without opposition. So the the current DA that we have here was here for 20 years. The DA before him was here for 28. And so when I tell people, you know, it's been 48 years 
and we've only had two DAs, or I tell them it's been 16 years since we've had a DA election, which means that, you know, if you do, if you're not going to vote for somebody in that position, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? It's not something that people think about. But a DA is an extremely important position. I think it's the ACLU that says that the DA is one of the most important elected positions that most people do not know about. And that's because the DA leads an office with so much discretion and authority and very little oversight. And directly impacting the community are the decisions that the DA makes as to who to charge, what crimes to charge them with, and those will affect the sentence person may serve, but also the option of sentencing or how to hold that person accountable. Because we always want people to be held accountable for what they do, but we don't want to be punitive in that accountability because that sort of defeats the purpose. There are a couple of of stats that I like to share with people, and the first one is 95% of all people who are incarcerated will be released. And where do they go? They go back home, they go to what they know, they go back to their communities. And how are we preparing them? Are we preparing better people to return or are we preparing better criminals? And how are we preparing the communities to get them back? And so when we look at my approach to the DA's office is I'm really about keeping communities safe. I have to think about what happens down the line when these people do come out, because you always hear people talk about a concept called recidivism, which is the rate of how people who have committed a crime, serve their time, are released, and then go back and recommit another crime. And we know that options beyond incarceration, such as an accountability court system, where somebody is put through a a pretty intense program, 18, 24 months, under the supervision of a judge, um, receiving treatment if, for example, their issue dealt with drugs or if their issue dealt with mental illness, we know that programs like that reduce recidivism uh, right at the end. And so that's really, really important. Another example I'll give you is that under the DA's office, uh, we review or or have oversight on the the juvenile justice uh, prosecution part of it. And in athens Clark. For the first time this year, we actually had an organization that went in and did uh, analyze the data that was coming out of our courtrooms, out of our jails, and out of our juvenile justice system, and discovered that in the last four years, 77% of all cases that are prosecuted in juvenile court are against Black boys. But Black boys only make up less than 15% of our population. And even more startling is if you dig into that data and look at what these boys are actually being prosecuted for, 76% of those charges are based on loitering. And loitering means they're standing around hanging out with a friend and somebody called the police on them. Um, And so these are things that we need to address 
as we move forward and bring the DA's office up to where the community needs it to be. You mentioned Governor Deal, and I think if our listeners are familiar with this issue at all, they're probably familiar with Governor Deal's efforts with the state legislature to enact criminal justice reforms at the Mm -hmm. state legislative level. Um, So how would you describe where Georgia is in terms of reforming our criminal justice system? What reforms are working and which reforms are still needed? And how would you as a DA sort of take the ball with these reforms and move it forward through the authorities that you have in that position? Yeah, thank you. Um, So Governor Deal had eight pieces of criminal justice reform that he wanted to get through the legislature. He got seven of them passed. I was very proud to be uh, in the legislature when we passed his seventh one in his final year as being governor. And each of these tried to deal with a different aspect of the criminal legal system. Uh, This one in particular uh, was dealing with things like cash bail bonds. Um, Another aspect, we had one in a prior year that dealt with establishing a funding mechanism and a reporting mechanism for things like accountability courts. And when we look at where is Georgia in terms of criminal justice reform, I want to make very clear that Georgia is not just one particular place, right? We have 159 counties. And so reform has taken a uh, affect better in some counties than in others. And a big part of that is because of the law enforcement, right, of these counties, because no matter what the legislature does in terms of writing the bills up, passing them so that they become law, um, it is then up to, you know, law enforcement, police, sheriff, to uh, enforce those laws, whether they're going to arrest people based on them. It's up to the DA and his office of prosecutors whether they will prosecute a person under the new laws or not. And so an example of of, uh, one of the ways that the legislature maybe hasn't gone as far as Governor Deal um, imagined deals with this uh, goal of sort of reducing or ending mass incarceration. And so when we look at the statistics, yes, there are less people who are actually incarcerated in Georgia. However, what we've seen is that there has been a dramatic increase in people who are under community supervision, which means probation or parole. So what has happened is that people are serving shorter sentences physically detained in a jail, but they are under supervision for much longer time. And that sets up the dilemma that one, you have over 2 million people, uh, more or less, under this community supervision that at any given time are under threat of being reincarcerated because they violated their um, probation. And violation of probation can be on a very technical thing. For example, if you don't have a job, if you don't have lodging, 
but yet we haven't set up mechanisms to help individuals once they are released to re-enter, to get that lodging, to be able to get a job. So another problem that we have is, is many individuals even if they do, like one of the things that has happened is putting certain trainings um, into the jails so that people can have skills, which is a wonderful idea. The problem is that once they're released, when they go to get a job in that particular field, they're told, no, we don't hire anybody with a criminal history. So if we don't look at how to get those two pieces sort of to work together, then what we're doing inside the jails are futile because when they get out, they're not going to be able to get a job. If they don't have a job and can't sustain themselves financially, that is a motivator to commit a crime, right? To be able to then support and provide for your family or for whatever needs that you have, like paying rent. And so You know, I think we have to look at the system holistically. And so a DA, if if we change the perception of a DA as somebody whose only focus should be the courtroom, uh, you know, charging people, putting people to trial, getting them convicted and putting them away in jail. If we change that mindset to the DA being a person of influence in the community that can set up partnerships within the community to prevent people from getting into the system to begin with, and then also to support that once they're out, that, you know, they, they have those skills, at, but as well that they have the opportunities so that they do not need to fall back to where they were before. Let's dive in a little bit on some of the positions that you take in your platform. Under the plank of ending mass incarceration, you say that you want to reduce the overcharging of defendants. Uh, Why are the charges filed by district attorneys important as it relates to mass incarceration? Yeah, so this is one of the most important decisions that the DA and the prosecuting attorneys actually make is what to charge a person with, you know, because they're arrested and there is a police report that gets created and the police will put certain facts or things that they um, sort of saw or witnessed or things that they heard, statements that they took at the scene of the crime, et cetera. And then the the DA and the prosecuting attorneys will look at that report and sort of translate it into what charges are we going to prosecute this person for. And different crimes have different um, sentencing guidelines. Uh, So if, you know, you take a a pen from somebody, maybe that's petty theft. Uh, If you take the pen and push somebody, maybe that's, you know, assault with that theft. If I take your pen and I drag you a little bit of a way, can I then charge you with kidnapping? I mean, and you say, boy, that sounds really strange. All of a sudden it's kidnapping. Right. But technically under the law, there are um, opportunities to do that. And so sometimes these charges are just piled one on top of the other with the ultimate goal that the defendant or the person who's being charged will actually settle for a lesser sentence. And and this idea of settling is through a process called plea bargaining or plea negotiation. And in the athens Clark County, Oconee area, we actually have 97% of all cases are 
plea bargained out, which means that they do not go to trial. This is actually higher than national standard is 95%, but here it's 97%. And it's that high for a few reasons. Number one, we just don't have the manpower to do a trial for every single case that comes up, right? And people do not necessarily want to go through a whole trial. So giving them an option of plea deal uh, or pleading out uh, the the particular charge um, helps sort of the system keep going. And it's supposed to make it easier, right? But unfortunately, what we've seen is an overcharging of defendants so that they will plea down to a certain um, sentencing. Okay, and so this overcharging on the front end uh, is something that's very dangerous. And and if you think about it, a, a lawyer, when they are trained to negotiate, right, you're always told start high because you're going to come down. And so we have that same mindset going into the prosecutor's office of we're going to start with the maximum charges that we can get and then we will plead down. So they will at least serve something. So, you know, specifically that you would not prosecute low-level marijuana possession or violations of the state's abortion ban in House Bill 481. How does that work? Are those simply policies that can be established within your jurisdiction to not charge for those things? Or would you, you know, make it a policy to accept plea plea deals or, or plea bargains yeah so first of all they're, they're distinctive right the marijuana possession and the hb 481 and so let me start with the hb 481 which is the anti-abortion bill um i have pledged not to prosecute women under there because it is unconstitutional under our current law and in fact when i spoke with uh senator Cowsert, who is my senator, my representative, uh, that was one of the first things he told me, that it was unconstitutional. And so, you know, I don't think anybody really felt that uh, anybody was going to prosecute under this bill until it got through the system that it needed to get through. But to me, HB 481 is unconstitutional. And so I would not enforce it or prosecute under that. The low-level marijuana possession is we are in a time of change. And, you know, I want to focus on truly violent um, crimes that are truly affecting our community and making it outright dangerous for the people in our community. Low-level marijuana possession is not one of those crimes. And the sentencing of it has been all over the place from people who get, you know, two week probation to somebody who's serving life without parole because they had 40 grams um, or, or something of that nature. And so, you know, as the state just passed legislation to allow cultivation and dispensary, uh dispensing of medical cannabis oil. I think as we're looking at the national landscape where they're thinking about uh, moving the way that marijuana is actually categorized in our drug schedule, there's all of these things that are happening that I think right now the idea is we're not going to pursue those kinds of cases uh, because it's, it's really not worth the time and we can deal with it in other ways. And so I think that's really important, one, to distinguish those two, but two, to also look at we have 
a certain amount of limited resources, what is going to make our communities safer? Is it those or, you know, I don't want to go after these low, low marijuana possessions, but I do want to go after the people who are doing all these big drug deals, right? The big kingpins who are doing this and bringing them out um, and putting people in danger because of the drugs that they are selling. That to me is a better use of resources and time and will lead to a better result of our communities being safer. So you also say that you'll develop a public data portal and establish data, a data and accountability task force. Aside mm-hmm. from kind of a general value about supporting transparency, what is the usefulness of this data to the public? What are sort of the end goals of pursuing these policies? Well, the end goal is to let people know what is going on. And, you know, when people know, then they know how to hold uh, their elected officials accountable. And the DA is an elected official. But, you know, and you can read this on the national level as well as the state level. So much of what happens in a DA's office is sort of like a black box. And yes, we know that there are confidentiality issues that we need to protect uh, victims' identities, for example, and, and, and certain other things. But we also have to know, well, what is happening when we have that data and the data analysis? Uh, what is going on? Are we actually um, prosecuting who we need to prosecute? Are we missing things in evidence gathering or in the way that we're presenting this evidence? So a new trend that's been happening in Athens Oconee is a court watch program where just, you know, everyday citizens can go in and watch what happens at court and take down their observations and their reflections and then share it with the judge and share it with the people who are administrating what's happening in the court, because there's always ways where we can improve. And I think, again, you know, it's it's sort of a cautionary tale that elected officials tend to believe that they have all the answers. And that's not necessarily true, right? There's a lot of good people out there in the community doing some good work and can have some ideas that they can share with elected officials. And so when I talk about a task force, the idea is that the community can come in and have their say. Because, you know, when we talk about keeping communities safe, what is our trust level with the criminal legal system? And you can't trust something that you don't know what's happening. And there is a great um, quote by Preet who wrote a book called Doing Justice, in which he says, you know, people may not agree with the ultimate outcome of a particular case, but if they have borne witness to the process of how justice was administered, they can accept it because they know that justice was really pursued. You know, we have so many issues happening right now in our community where we don't trust the police, we don't trust the DA, we don't trust the court system because we don't know what's happening in those systems. And so that's why I believe a data portal and having this community task force is so essential to our our criminal legal system going forward. So your platform also says that you would like to end cash bail. I know you mentioned that you were in the legislature when uh, that final plank of Governor Deal's criminal justice reform was passed, considering issues around cash bail. Can you describe the impact cash bail has on people who have low incomes and are involved in the criminal legal system? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is this goes back to why did we have cash bail to begin with? And and for you listeners, so that they understand what cash bail is, it's the idea that if someone is arrested, they have an opportunity to post bail, to give a financial, you know, amount of money that is supposed to ensure that they will come back to court. Because if they come back to court, they get their money back. If they don't come back to court, then that money is sort of absorbed by the court. And so it was considered that this is the only way to get people back to court. What we have what has happened, though, is that if you are a person of means, then that's not a problem. You post the bail and, and you're gone. But for most people, they cannot afford bail even as low as $500 or $1,000. Um, and you must post at least 10% of that in order to go through. And so it's created an industry of bail bond companies where they say, OK, we will post a certain amount of money. You give us a percentage. Um, and we'll post the rest of the bond, and then you owe us for the money. And, of course, that money has some interest, has some fees on it. And so someone of low socioeconomic status not only has the debt of the bond and the, and the bail, but now they have the added debt of all these fees that the bonds person is charging them. Or they can't get the money at all and end up being incarcerated, spending days, sometimes months. I think one of the most egregious was a couple of years that somebody stayed in there because their trial hadn't come up um, and they didn't have the money for bail bonds. So they're just sitting in jail. And when you are uh, detained in that matter, even though you have not been right convicted of any crime, so there's the majority of people who are sitting in our jails right now who have not been convicted of a crime. They're just waiting because they can't pay their bail. Well, the more time you spend in there that you're not at your job, which means that you have the potential of losing your job, which will put you in in further financial straits. You might lose, um, you know, who's going to take care of your kids. So parental rights can be affected by not being able to post that bond. And so that those are just some of the reasons. But what we've also seen is research has said, you know what, having a cash bail does not necessarily ensure that somebody will come uh, back to court. And in fact, we had one study that said, you know what, texting the person or calling them the day before, a couple days before their court date actually led to more people coming to their court appearance than having the bail bond. So We've seen that there are other ways that we can get people motivated to come back to court without having to put this undue financial burden on them or incarcerate them when they have not been um, convicted of a crime. And then all the burdens that that adds to their family, to their social life. And, you know, when you affect a family, you affect the community and neighborhood that they are from. And when you affect the community and neighborhood that they are from, you affect the entire society that we are a part of. So what part of ending cash bail or changing policies around that is within the purview of the DA? And what parts of that are left up to other actors like the state legislature? Uh, so the DA can can say that they're not going to charge, they're not going to um, seek bail, right? Because the DA does make those decisions as to how much to set the bail at. We will ask, well, 
let me put it this way. We asked the judge to set bail at a certain amount and the judge has the ultimate decision, but the judge usually does go by the recommendation of the DA or the prosecuting attorney. So the DA and prosecuting attorney have a lot of influence in terms of how that bail is set, you know? And I think one of the things that we've seen is if we can have um, a situation where people, stakeholders within the criminal legal system are collaborating more, are working together more on an issue like cash bail, where we say, you know what, we're not going to charge them cash bail. It'll be on their own recognizance. They will sign. Of course, unless somebody is truly a danger, right, to themselves or the community, then why would you even give them the opportunity for bail if they are that much of a danger? then you need to keep them out of the community. So um, that is something that the DA does. Now, of course, the legislature could pass a law that says we're not going to charge cash bail at all. I don't think that would ever happen. The um, bail bond companies have a very strong lobbying group, and that would mean the end of their industry. So I don't think that we would see a push from the legislature about that. And in fact, even when we passed that seventh piece, there was legislation language introduced to an immigration bill that sort of way some of the uh, municipal authorities, specifically Atlanta, and what they had done about cash bail reform, uh, taking away that authority so that cities could not do that unless it was passed by the state legislature. So, you know, the state legislature has oversight over the entire state and they could pass laws limiting cash bail, eliminating cash bail. Um, but I think it's a really hard push that would do so. So much more easier on the local level with the DA working with the judges and uh, to to have that um, not as high as before. So one more final plank of your platform here. You say that you want to establish restorative justice programs in the juvenile and superior courts. Can you describe what restorative justice means as a concept to you and what impact it would have on people involved in the juvenile and superior courts? Yeah, thank you for that question, because it is, again, like the word prosecution, I think people look and say, what does that mean? What what are you doing? Are is people going to, you know, come around in a circle and sing kumbaya or something? And the idea to me of restorative justice is looking at that trauma and that violence of what has occurred in the community and how do we heal from it? And and that's because we know that the majority of victims and offenders come from the same community. So you can't help one without helping the other. The other thing is that many times victims are are only considered sort of like a hostile witness in the whole system. We're not really looking at um, what does the victim need? Many times the victim just wants to be heard, wants to get an apology, wants to ask some very basic questions of the defendant, like, why did you pick me out of all the people in the world? Why did you pick me to hurt? And sometimes there is no answer to that. Sometimes this this practice of restorative justice, of bringing people who agree to participate, right? This is not a mandatory program. This does not get forced on people. People have to come to this particular 
alternative voluntarily to be able to face each other and deal with those questions so that a true healing can take place and that a you know this is something that people want they don't necessarily want to have this you against us kind of adversarial system because that means that somebody always loses right somebody's on the end of being punished extremely and and yet a lot of times even after a case a victim will feel that yeah okay so he goes to jail and now what what about me what happens to me and so restorative justice really does take into account both that victim trying to give the victim what they need but also the defendant so that they understand what it is that they did um, what was the harm that was caused and why they caused it, helping them get through, as maybe somebody would say, their own demons and just trying to get everybody on the same page so that when we are all back out in the community, all together, that what happened is truly left in the past so that we can move forward and heal our community. So we've covered a lot of ground in your platform today, but are there any other issues you'd like to touch on before we go? Um, you know, yeah, we've, we've covered so, so much, right. But I think what's really important for people to know is first of all, um, why is the Athens DA race so important? Just like, why is there, um, a race in Cobb or DeKalb? Why do these single races are important for everybody in the state of Georgia, not just for those people in those particular counties? And part of it deals with your question relating to the legislature. Look, there are 49 DAs in the state of Georgia. They form their own group. They have a say on what happens with criminal justice and criminal bills or laws that are being passed or considered to be passed. You know, they talk to the legislatures about what we need in the legal system, what can be done, what works, what isn't working, how we can uh, push you know, some agendas together. And so I think it's really important that you understand that you're you're voting for that DA, but that DA also has this sort of legislative role to play that most people don't think about in that way because they only think of the DA as the person in that courtroom. And as long as they're in the courtroom, they're fine. But of course, because of my experience with the legislature, I just see it a lot broader in that way and something that we really do need uh, to take into account. The other thing that I would say is that the DA race, unlike judges, is a partisan race. So candidates run as Democrats or Republicans. And right now, out of the 49 DAs, we only have about 12 who are um, listed as openly Democrat. Uh, I will be running as a Democrat come May 2020. And, you know, for some people, that's important. They equate that with maybe thinking a little bit broader about uh, what a prosecutor could do or that it'll be on a progressive slant, the way that they look at dealing with some of these criminal justice reforms. But even saying that, right, even saying that it is a partisan race, you can understand that criminal justice itself, the issue and reform is not partisan because you've had, you know, the stuff that Governor Deal has made as well as what um, the other prosecutors and DAs have done in their own. So I just wanted to make those distinctions and things because, you know, DA races are far and few between, believe it or not, because people tend to go in there and then they're not opposed for many, many years. But it is it is a role in an elected position that I think people need 
to become educated on and aware of their power in the community. Well, Deborah, we really appreciate you joining the podcast today to tell us about your campaign and to give us a little bit of education on these issues. If people would like to learn more about your campaign, how could they do that? Absolutely. Well, I have a website. It is www.debra, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, for D-A, F-O-R-D-A.com. You can follow me on Twitter at DG, the number four, D-A. And on Facebook, DG, the number four, DA. Um, I also have Instagram. I don't know if your viewers like Instagram, but you can find me on Instagram at DG, the number four, DA as well. And I'd love uh, to have engagement with your listeners. So, you know, if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have an issue with criminal justice, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. All right. Well, Deborah Gonzalez is a candidate for district attorney in the Western Judicial Circuit in Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties. Deborah, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much, Kyle. Pleasure to be here. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.